Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. I am very, very excited because I am in a remote location, underground, on Broadway, in New York City, at a comedy club that is the gold standard for every single comedy club you have ever been in in your entire lifetime if you've been in a comedy club. And I'm talking about Caroline's Comedy Hour, and I am sitting across from the person whose name it bears, and that would be Caroline Hirsch. And I'm very, very excited about this interview for many, many reasons, and I always get pretty deep with these things. But before I do, I want to thank all of you so much for uh, for listening to this podcast so much as you do. I just, it's so incredibly humbling and I'm very honored and thankful and I appreciate everything that all of you do with emails and your uh, tweets and your Facebook messages and there's just the comments on the iTunes page are just incredible. I never, I'm telling you, when you start anything, whatever you're doing out there in the business, you're never going to get anywhere unless you take risks. And I'm sitting across from somebody who is probably one of the greatest examples of that. But I think to myself in a minor pinhead of a example of industry standard where I'm a guy doing what I'm doing and I want to do something that can help people. And, but I have to figure out how to do it in my spare time. So it doesn't take up 
anything away from my clients or the productions or anything like that. Every artist out there, every person who's starting a career, you hope that something works. But if it doesn't, you take the hit and you move forward and you, you do something else. And I'm just glad that you guys like this and feel so strongly about it. So thank you. As I sit here, uh, as you know, normally I just, something comes to me when I'm sitting across from somebody. The first thing that comes to me, and I hope Caroline doesn't get up and walk out of the room and say, fuck this guy. I'm sitting across from somebody who I have, I've always respected so much from the moment when I saw her from afar on 8th Avenue, and I believe it was the first Caroline's Comedy Club incarnation with tables, with white tablecloths on them and candles. I believe this is in the 80s, probably the mid-80s, and I was coming from Boston, and I was just trying to figure out what comedy was all about because I was doing it, I thought, successfully in Boston until I came and I saw what Caroline was doing, and then I realized she was basically working in her mind with a concept as as I would say that I when I worked at a comedy club in Boston, it was called Play It Again Sam's and the guy would walk out of the building and have people putting flyers on cars that said free admission when another person pays full price. And I would have these arguments with the guy and sit down with him and he I'd say, Why are you doing this? It cheapens the club, it cheapens the comedy club. And he'd look at me with this death stare and say, Barry, it's okay to be Volkswagen. You don't have to be the Four Seasons or the Ritz-Carlton to be successful. I want to be Volkswagen. I want to be the car that people get who maybe can't afford to go to the other place. But Caroline had a different vision. Caroline had the vision of the Four Seasons of comedy the Ritz-Carlton of comedy, a place where you spent significant money to get a significant show. And I would see her walking around. I never approached her back then. I was too intimidated. But as I started to get to know her through the incarnations of things, I'll share with you, the audience, and I'll share with her now something that she may not know. I always thought I'm dealing with somebody... I just can't be in a situation where this person even remotely likes me. She had this way about her where she'd walk up to you and she'd be so professional and so like, you talk about a leader of men and women, like presidential. And I was far from presidential. Every dealing I ever had, it was always like, God, I'm never going to be in a situation where this person ever feels anything for me or anything about me. And so the more I strive to do better work as a manager and the more I strive to represent the kind of people that could work in the four seasons of comedy at Caroline's Comedy Club, the more I felt a little bit more that she might turn around and she might think, okay, I guess he's, uh, I guess he's in the game. We're going to book this person here and book that person there. But then, as usual in my career... I was always the kind of guy who most lawyers think there's three kinds of deals. The one that you go home and you're cheering because you got a great deal. And the other person is like, fuck, I can't believe what happened here. And this other kind of deal where 
Caroline is going home and saying, hey, wow, can you believe we got this person for this? And the other person's like, oh, man, we really bent over a coffee table here. And then there's the other kind of deal where everybody says this is fair. And sometimes I think I was always striving to, and I made a mistake and I made many mistakes, but one of my mistakes sometimes is to do a deal that I felt was, was not fair. Deals that I pushed the limits on that people felt uncomfortable with. So in being and getting to a place where I thought I was getting to where I would garner some lovability and respect, I was actually in a situation probably where I was not doing that. But the thing is, every time I've been with Caroline, she's like literally like a poker player who you never know where you stand. And that's part of the thing that I realize now. It's a leadership style and it's a personal style where you go through life and it's sort of like people have to be chameleons and they have to figure out how to work with certain people and how to be around certain people to where everybody feels great. And every time I was with Caroline or hang out with her, spent a few moments with her, I always left the room, believe it or not, after everything I've said to you, feeling great and feeling like, wow, that is somebody who I really aspire to have the kind of qualities that can lead men and women can be a risk taker and can be somebody who can put it all out there when times are bad and times are good and still win. And so when I'm sitting in this comedy club, one of the things I remember vividly about Caroline, because you hear things that maybe Caroline doesn't know you hear or want you to hear or how it is. And Caroline, as we'll talk about, had gone through many incarnations of this comedy club, 8th Avenue. You had the Seaport, which was an incredible, incredible place, but in a very challenging location. And this particular comedy club, through construction of the street, but in the beginning, when you open up a comedy club and you're designing it and you're putting it together, whatever you do, you have the greatest intentions and the greatest visions. But when comedians started coming in here and headlining and I would come down and, and watch because I wanted to see, I, I maybe it's crazy. I didn't come down here for the comedy. I came down here to see how Caroline orchestrated this new venture and this operational situation that really had never been done here in the city before. You'd think in New York City it had been done, but not on Broadway with so much competition. So what I'll tell you is comedians started coming here in the headline. They weren't used to a room like this. And the shows that I went to in the very beginning, I'm talking about the first week, the second week, the month, the two months, there were crowds here, but the comedians were not doing well. They were not doing as well as they normally did. I guess they didn't understand how to play the room or they didn't know how to play the room properly, or I don't know what it was. And I thought to myself, my God, is this a symptom of the room? Is this a symptom of how it operates? Is this going to be something that's going to take Caroline down? But sure enough, I came back about three months later, six months later, and people were killing. And I saw one person who got a standing ovation, and I'm like, it's over. It's on. And so 
the risk in the beginning to take on something like this on Broadway was enormous. And to come in here and do something like this with all the expenses and have to pay comedians literally a thousand to two thousand times more than they make at the comedy cellar. And to take that kind of position with your life and your career and to make it work and to be here so many years later is a testament to Caroline and should be an example to all of you that if you have a dream and you have something that you want to do that's special, but you're worried about it, take the risk and fight hard to make it the best that it can be. And I guarantee you, if you play your cards right, you'll be sitting here in your own space, wherever you are, feeling very proud of all of your accomplishments because I can guarantee you when you take risks, you get to the next level like no one else in the world. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Cash card. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard on location at Caroline's Comedy Club. By the way, 100 episodes or so. Never been in a comedy club on a location. It's the first time I've ever done this before, and I'm loving it. So I'm here with Caroline Hirsch. Very excited. It's an honor. I've just shared my soul like I'm in a therapy session. But I want to give Caroline the proper introduction. Caroline Hirsch, as founder and owner of the world-renowned comedy nightclub that bears her name, Caroline Hirsch has consistently proven herself as an entrepreneur, visionary, and innovator in the entertainment industry during an illustrious 30-year career. That's unbelievable. As one of the country's most popular destinations for live entertainment by presenting nationally renowned entertainers, 
Caroline's on Broadway comedy nightclub stands as the crowning achievement of Hirsch's illustrious career. A Brooklyn native, Caroline graduated from St. Brennan's High School and attended the City College of New York and the Fashion Institute of Technology before working at a former retail giant store, Gimbel's. Wow. Her storied career in comedy began in 1982 when Caroline followed her true passion for comedy and along with friends Bob Stickney and Carol Christian opened a small cabaret club in Manhattan's Chelsea neighborhood. With the popularity of stand-up comedy on the rise, she began booking comedians including such then unknowns as Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, Gary Shandling, Sandra Bernhardt, Pee Wee Herman, Billy Crystal, and later Chris Rock to perform at her club. Caroline soon became a mandatory stop on the way to comedic greatness. In 1987, Caroline's moved the club to the South Street Seaport where it became a full-fledged comedy nightclub, the first of its genre to offer high-quality entertainment and equally excellent food in a sophisticated, upscale environment. Caroline's became the place for rising comedians to perform. Having earned a reputation for discovering comedy's brightest future stars, Hirsch was asked by the Arts and Entertainment Network to produce a stand-up comedy show she created and executive produced, the highly successful Caroline's Comedy Hour, which under her production company, Pinky Ring Productions, 120 episodes were produced and aired. The show ultimately won a Cable Ace Award for Best Stand-Up Comedy Series. In order to meet the growing demand for business, Hirsch moved her club uptown, where it has played an integral part in the revitalization of Times Square. Today, Caroline's on Broadway, as it is now known, holds center stage in the heart of Times Square as a top New York night spot and one of its most popular entertainment destinations. The 300-seat club, with its elegant Art Deco decor received the American Institute of Architecture Award for Best Interior Club Design and was featured on the cover of Interior Design Magazine. Hirsch celebrated the 20th anniversary of Caroline's with a gala comedy concert at Carnegie Hall. Hirsch launched the New York Comedy Festival and has placed such comedic luminaries as Dennis Leary, Dane Cook, remember that at Madison Square Garden, Roseanne Barr, Howie Mandel, Drew Carey, Rosie O'Donnell, and Stephen Wright, Aziz Ansari, Adam Carolla, Rob Delaney, Jim Gaffigan, Ricky Gervais, Kevin Hart, Patton Oswald, Brian Regan, Marlon and Sean Wayans, and of course, another amazing appearance, the late Robin Williams. Hirsch also created Stand Up for Heroes, a benefit for the Bob Woodruff Foundation for Traumatic Brain Injuries that Caroline created and has featured the likes of Bill Cosby, Conan O'Brien, Roger Waters, and Bruce Springsteen. Hacks. In 2013, Hirsch presented Louis C.K. Live at New York City Center, a sold-out 14-show engagement that ran from October 24th to 28th, produced on the chopping block a roast of Anthony Bourdain, who was named a comedy legend and groundbreaker by Daily Variety and produced the 10th anniversary TV special, The Miz Foundation's Women of Comedy for a Lifetime, and for nearly 20 years has also hosted an annual fundraising event for the foundation. Among her numerous awards, Hirsch has been honored with the New York Police Athletic League's Women of the Year Award, the Ms. Foundation's Philanthropic Vision Award, and the National Association of Women Business Owners Signature Award for Lifetime Achievement.
ladies and gentlemen, an unbelievable introduction. So much stuff. It's unbelievable. It's like war and peace. Please welcome uh, what I consider to be uh, one of the most incredible uh, business people and entrepreneurs in comedy, Caroline Hirsch. Wow, that was quite quite, quite the intro here. Um, my goodness, a Friday morning in the city, uh, 10 o'clock in a comedy club. A little different, huh, there? It is a little different. <laughs> Have you ever done comedy at 10 o'clock in the morning? No. Uh, sometimes watched it. Sometimes, you know, sometimes watched it to 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, but thank you for um, all of the accolades. Um, well, deserve it. You are very inspirational. I must say that. I felt inspired by everything you were saying. We've known each other for a long time. Um, you came to New York, I guess, in the mid-80s. Yes. And decided that you were going to be in the comedy business and opened a club here. Yes, I did. And you were the competition at that time. I was the competition? <laughs> that little, the Anne Frank of comedy, that, that, <laughs> that the comedy attic? Uh, that was the competition? Well, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, we all kind of started out and we never knew exactly where this was all going to go and about how popular comedy is today. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big, big business. I never realized um, how popular um, the performers would be starting with, you know, starting with in probably 1982 or 83 with Jay Leno. And then he goes on and hosts The Tonight Show and Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David. And they go on to create probably the most popular, the most, um, the greatest sitcom around. Um, that just keeps going and going and going. It's still going 20 years later. So it's been quite an amazing business that uh, we were all in together at the, at the beginning when the comedy boom was starting in the early 80s. It's so fascinating hearing you talk about it, and it makes me realize something that I didn't even really understand at any point in time when I, when I was around you. I, it's a business and I guess you, I guess I never felt like ever that it was thought of as a, maybe you made it feel like to me, like it was never thought of as a business because there was so much love and passion for it. Like, I honestly believe that if, if, you know, God bestowed you with all the money in the world and the health of yourself and your family, but he told you, you'd have to go to work every day and do something. I really believe that at least back then that you would have been doing the same thing. You, you know, I didn't, you know, it all came about as kind of a fluke, but things in life are not flukes. They happen for a certain reason. I was in retail at the time in the early eighties and I was working for Gimbel's at the time and Gimbel's was closing. So in probably in about you know, it was, I've worked like since I'm 16 years old, doing anything from selling magazines to working to coffee shops and working through college and whatever and did everything. And I was in retail after, you know, after going to FIT, I went to work for, for, for retail stores in the city. What were you and, doing? What was your job? Uh, you know, a store manager, assistant buyer at that time. Then I worked for a buying company and then I went to Gimbel's to work as a market rep. And a market rep is somebody that goes out in the market every day and tries to find trends of where the business is going, uh, look at lines. And I was responsible for 39 other stores that the Gimbel's chains made up around the country from 
uh, Milwaukee chain, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia chain, and the New York chain. She was about close to like 40 stores at that time that she sent reports out to. This is what's happening. This was not happening. Uh, take a markdown now on goods and stuff like that. One of the things all of you can't see, and I don't think I explained enough, from the moment I first saw Caroline in her comedy club on 8th Avenue till now, this is a person who always had like a sense of fashion and always had a sense of style that you never saw out in even New York, let alone a shitty comedy club or any place you were in, you know, hanging out at Madison Square Garden. It just, it, I never ever saw her in the same outfit twice. <laughs> I never ever saw her dressed in a way that I felt was unkempt or like she, or like me. And it all comes together because the Fashion Institute of Technology and that thing, and that's, that was the beginning. So now I know and you've never lost it. Well, it, it was that I was laid off from the job. I wasn't working, took some time off. And I had my friends, Bob Stickney and Carl Christian, and they owned some clubs, bars around the city and wanted to open a cabaret. And they said, you know, come be a partner with us. And we want to name it Caroline's. Well, <laughs> when that happened. Why would they want to name it your name when they're the one trying to get you to do it? And you had never done anything I'd before. I'd never done it. I, they're looking for some money for investment. So I made an investment with them and it was a cabaret. Well, that wasn't quite working as a cabaret. So for about a year, we presented different cabaret acts from, from jazz, from uh, piano bars to, we, we did a number of different things to try to make it work until we said, you know what? You know, it was the time when David Letterman was going on the air at 1230 at night. I was a fan of his 10 o'clock show in the morning um, and a fan of Rich Hall's at that time. And he was going on at 1230. And I said, you know, there's just something about comedy and it's young and hip. And it's just, I just got this feeling about it. And I just want to be involved because I grew up watching Carson I grew up watching that show and watching every comedian on there and watching David Steinberg do like 150 appearances on The Tonight Show or was something close to that. Um, and I just had this feeling that I wanted to present something that was cool and hip that I liked. So we put an offer out to Jay Leno. And that was kind of the start of Caroline's as a comedy club. How did you know what to offer Jay Leno's agent? Um, I remember at that time uh, we were negotiating with, I believe it was Spotlight. He was Spotlight with. Entertainment, which was right here at 57th and Broadway in a six degrees of separation for Caroline. She may not know this, but when I first came to New York, I went to Spotlight and I said, listen, I would like an office here. And Bob Williams, who was the owner, and Chris McNeil said, what are you, what are you talking about? We don't rent office space here. Well, I thought you'd make an exception for me. I want to be a part of the business. And I sat with those guys for three hours. They didn't know who I was. And by the end of it, uh, he says, go in the waiting room. I'll be back, kid. And like about an hour later, he comes back in. Bob Williams had this voice like this. He said, okay, we've decided we'll rent you an office. Uh, we would love you to be an agent here. And we'll hire you immediately if you want to be an agent. I said, I don't want to be an agent. I want to start my own company, my own world here. And he says, okay, then we'll rent you an office. And he shows me the office and it's, it's an office. I swear to you, it's eight feet by five feet. It would like literally fit like maybe a small desk, a chair and another chair at the desk, but it overlooked 
57th and Broadway was in the Hard Rock building. And I said, wow, this is great. How much is that going to be a month? He said six hundred dollars. This is this is nineteen eighty seven, right? And the six hundred dollars, this is like you literally it's like Henny Youngman said, you you know, you know you're in a shitty hotel room when you put your key in the door and you break the window. You can't charge me six hundred dollars. Like, kid, six hundred dollars or it's over. And I said, Okay, just give me a few minutes to think about this. I went in the lobby and I realized I don't have the money to do this. I don't have the money to commit, you know, seven, over $7,000 a year to do this. I don't have anything, but I knew that there was an opportunity here to be around people. And as Royce Clayton told me in one podcast, study greatness, imitate greatness, become great. So I walked back in. I said, I'll take it. And he said, that's going to be first, last and security. I said, no problem. I'll get that for you. I didn't have $1,800, but I figured out a way to borrow or beg and steal or do whatever I did. And I got him the money and I had no idea how I was going to make it, but I figured out a way to do it. Of course, Mm -hmm. like you did. And Jay Leno was one of their clients there. Spotlight had a lot of clients early on. Mm -hmm. All the comedians. Jerry Seinfeld was also there at that time. Um, APA had lots of clients and, uh, very fond memories of Roger Vorse of APA and Marty Klein. The late Marty Klein. Marty Klein called me one time when I was representing Dave Chappelle and said, I want to represent Dave Chappelle. I said, well, he's with another agency. He said, please meet with me. And I sat down with him and his team and he gave a passionate speech of why they should represent Dave Chappelle. And I believe I had all the other agents leave and I sat down with Marty and I said, Marty, can I ask you a question? If you represented somebody like Dave Chappelle and their manager took a meeting like this at another company, an impassioned meeting, what would you want that manager and artist to do? And he said, I understand Barry, but we're, we're here. And if anything goes wrong or anything, we want to be in business. And like two weeks later, he passed away. It's horrible. He's a great man. He was a, it was a gentleman. When I started in this business, there were lots of gentlemen. And um, they kind of learned the business from them. They'd be at the club all the time. Lee Stevens from William Morris. Um, all of the young agents there at William Morris at that time, which was Kevin Uvain, was Jim Dixon. Uh, all these these guys would hang around the club yeah. to find talent and learn the business. Kevin Huvane, now one of the partners at CAA, and James Dixon has his own company where he represents a few people who are doing uh, well. John Stewart, uh, Steve Colbert, Adam Carolla. Jimmy Kimmel. And Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> not a bad little roster. No, not bad. And, you know, knowing that all of these people came out of this club scene, which is... Uh, um, big part of the comedy business coming out of the club scene. I mean, you and I have seen, you know, stars arise from, from here, uh, from, you know, Dane Cook, who you managed for many years. Yes. Uh, Dave Chappelle, Tracy Morgan. These are all your clients. Yes. I met through you years ago. This was the place that I aspired to have them work because this was the, it's like you said, if you're Dane Cook or Tracy Morgan or Dave Chappelle and you get the headline here, well, what are you associated with? 
you're associated with Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, all these great people that work there, and you become part of that that group. Well, I think also, you know, at Caroline's, it's it's gotten to the point now where, you know, agents agents and managers want their clients here to work at the club uh, because it's kind of a great when you when you can sell out Caroline's and do well here, you've kind of made it in the in in the business, and that's part of what goes on someone's resume. And um, when you can do it here in New York, you can probably do it anywhere. So it's kind of the benchmark of making it in the business. Absolutely. Now, I'd like to do something, if you don't mind. I'd like to go way, way, way back to Brooklyn. The kind of family you had, the kind of socioeconomic dynamic in the neighborhood where you were at in your home, and what really was the first inspiration to get into comedy? Was it truly your friends and that moment or was there something that happened in entertainment when you were growing up that you saw and even in your mind is going into fashion you were still thinking hmm, maybe there's something here that I might be in later on well I think I was always uh, we didn't call it pop culture then but I think that way back you know watching tv and watching some of the you know starting with you know I love Lucy and uh, I married Joan and the Bob Cummings show. I mean, I'm going back to these 50s shows, which there was great comedy, which, you know, it, the Our Evolution, which um, in the 40s, I guess people listened to them on the radio. Then the 50s, you know, where TV got to be popular. But there was this explosion on, on early TV of comedy. And I was part of that culture that watched it all the time. I watched, um, you know, The Tonight Show. All of the time I would try to stay up and watch that show and remembered all the comedians on there. I remembered David Steinberg, who I now work with now, you know, producing shows together in the in the comedy festival. Um, There's two David Steinbergs, so you know, in the business. There's the David Steinberg who managed Robin Williams and also manages Billy Crystal. And there's also the David Steinberg, who was a very unique and interesting stand-up comedian must have done the tonight show over a hundred times but also as a great interviewer and talk show host and producer and also directed a pilot for dane cook believe it or not a television pilot um actually david is right now a uh, he directs lots of very very successful sitcoms that have been on the air you know like work he works a lot with larry david with curb your enthusiasm and he's he's done a lot a lot of stuff so i remember watching you know david steinberg on music express was a show that he was on i think in the 60s at some i was a young girl at that time watching these people and there was something like i said to you nothing in life is a fluke it, there's a reason things happen um I watched a lot of television. I remember that. Uh, I was I was glued to the TV with all all of the family, the Norman Lear projects. I just adored all of the shows um, from watching the Jeffersons, uh, and, you know, and all and one, uh, just just like I I watched all of this TV. So there was this there was this connection later on between me and comedy. So there was a natural progression there. And Norman's amazing. He was an amazing guest. I had him on recently. And uh, what a story. What a he, I mean, talk about risk. He (laughs) 
tried all in the family. It gets canceled. The, the, the pilot doesn't even go. They call him again to do it two years later, the same network. He does it again, doesn't go. Then finally works hard to get this film deal going. And right before the film deal, CBS, another network, calls him and says, hey, we'll, we'll put 13 of these episodes on the air. But he had another deal that was more lucrative, more respected, because there were only two other people who had deals like that. But he gave it all up to do the show. Well, I think with Norman Lear, I think anybody that's kind of listening to your podcast and people uh, you know, in the industry, I mean, I think they all should read Norman's book. That was the beginning and future of, of TV. And he was right there and he made it and he took social standings and he did things that he, his conscience felt was the right thing to do. And he was super successful, but it's, it's a marvelous read for people in the industry to read that. Absolutely. It's called even this I get to experience. Yes. Incredible. I have the book. It's like, it's got so many posts. It's, I think it's got a whole thing of post-it notes in it from it's incredible. So, okay. So what kind of background was it? Did you grow up in a poor neighborhood, a middle class? A, well, you know, how was it wealthy? Like, well, we were kind of, I guess, economically kind of poor. I grew up in a, an Italian household. Uh, my mother and father were born. Well, my father was born in Sicily, but my mother's, my mother was born here. Um, my father just happened to be born there because my grandmother took a trip. That's why he was born there. Um, <laughs> you remind me of this comedian, Frank Santarelli. He says, my name's Frank Santarelli. I grew up in an Italian household where your father is the head of the household until your fucking grandmother moves in. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. I'll never, I'll never forget that. He's right. Yes, we did live with the grandparents, either they lived upstairs or across the street. <laughs> Typical Italian, you know. Uh, Why is that? Uh, it's the nurturing. It was uh, economics, too. It was, you know, the grandparents took care of the children when the, their parents went to work. So the, it was part of the economic scheme at that time also. But I had a, you know, happy childhood. Um, went to Catholic school. What is Catholic school like for us Jews out there and non-Catholics? Tell, tell me, you know, everybody makes jokes about it, but tell me three things about going to Catholic school as a girl, because as a guy, you always thought to yourself, God, if I could go out with a girl from a Catholic school, that'd be awesome. I think it was, it, there was a, a regiment. It was very strict rules and you had to go by them. It was a wonderful education. Um, I kind of applied myself in high school because I wanted to go, go to college and I needed to go to a college where I, I, on a tuition, you know, without tuition. So I kind of applied myself so I get good marks so I could go to college. Um, but nothing. It's the same as, uh, same as public school. Nothing different except uniforms. That was the only thing that kind of uniform, hat, and white gloves. What white, I had to wear at school. White gloves. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What happens after Catholic school? Catholic school, I went to City College, then I went to FIT, uh, then I went into the, I was working, and then I was married, now and then look, I wasn't married. I don't mean to give you a big hit. You're a beautiful, beautiful woman. You've always been one of the most beautiful women in the business, let alone the, the country. So, I mean, it must have been crazy. There must have been like, I mean, through colleges, there must have been guys everywhere. Just how do you, when you're in that situation and you are you know, fashionable and you're an entrepreneur and there's people everywhere. How do you like, as a woman in business, it's hard to be a woman in business because and I've shared this a few times, but I'll say it to you and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. 
if you're a guy and you run into a person like you, nine out of ten times you're going to say, God, I wonder what that would be like. If you're a woman who runs into a guy, ten guys, maybe one time you're saying, eh, I wonder what that would be like. So there's a reverse curve there. And in business, when you're trying to do business, like Whitney Cummings once said to me, she said, listen, I got a text from this guy. He's a showrunner. He's, uh, he wants to meet me for a cup of coffee. I'm like, fantastic. And then I get a text like maybe a half hour later uh, from the bathroom or something. Listen, I'm in the bathroom. Uh, I think this guy thinks this is a date. And so like, how did you deal in business as a woman, as a strong woman, a beautiful woman, carrying yourself the way you did and then, having to do business with gentlemen and knowing that there's always sometimes a hidden agenda with people. Did you ever have to deal with that? Um, I, I guess I was lucky that I didn't have to deal. I didn't deal with it. I, that's really never happened to me, but I have to tell you that sometimes I think that, um, I, I, I don't know. It's usually, I, I dealt with a lot of men early on in the business. And now there are many more women that are in the business, not only stand-up comedians, but also, you know, pitching shows and show ideas and stuff like that. There are more women around now. And I think early on, it was harder to, um, just harder to convey an idea to when you're pitching something to a man. I thought that they always thought that, you know, women just didn't know what was going to sell. Women just didn't know that. Um, and I early on, you know, knew exactly what sold. And I early on knew exactly what was funny. Um, I've worked here. Now, you have to go back and you have to trust my judgment because I've worked with the greatest people. The greatest people have been in my room. I've seen comedy from somebody trying to develop, you know, a joke to going on to having the greatest hour. So... I kind of knew where everything was going, but I don't think as a woman I was taken that seriously in the business for knowing exactly what was funny. And I still don't. I don't, I don't, I, I don't get the impression that, um, well, uh, maybe it's just me, maybe just me being insecure about it, but um, God, I know what's funny. God, I know what sells. So, you know, I always have to remind myself of that. Obviously, you don't think that way about how other people perceive you not necessarily knowing what's funny unless there's an example of something that happened in your life that made you feel like people thought that way about you. What happened? Oh, I, 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 I don't know. It's, 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 it's funny, but I, I like the way things are changing now that um, it, it's always been a guy-guy business. You know, it's, it's been a guy business. And I think that, you know, as I watch now as the Tina Fey's and the Amy Poehler's around and, and the Broad City Girls and some of the younger, you know, the Chelsea Handlers and all of these women breaking out and being funny and being recognized as being leaders in the industry. Um, I, I'm happy for that because I, I look back and I, I look back at me and I was kind of... In New York, probably the only women. I'm not saying there were women club owners, that's for sure. Uh, Mitzi from the Comedy Store uh, and Bud Friedman's wife. Sil Silver Friedman. Silver was running, you know, the improv in New York. 
Um, but it's, I don't, I, I don't know. I just feel, you know, it's so funny that when I meet these young comedians, like, a, like Alina Dunham saying, oh my God, I worshiped Caroline's growing up. I just wanted to be there. I took a class there once. I got into comedy because my mother took me there for new, for new year's Eve. And I saw Lisa Lampanelli, <laughs> you know? So it's like, uh, that part of it makes me happy and proud. I don't know if that answers your question. No, but it's, no, a, it good, it's a good answer. But you're, but you're good. getting into a territory here that I really don't want to discuss. That's okay. You see how I'm skirting it. You're like Reagan in the Iran-Contra <clears throat> hearings. Was I hit on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, men did come on, but that that's just, you know, I didn't take it because I was the club owner. It just, it just part of, I don't know, just part of business. I think it happens all the time. I, I think it does too. I just think it's interesting how you how you keep going and how you make things work. I always talk about this and maybe it hasn't, it didn't happen to you, but I always think that there's some incident where people lose their innocence. I'm not talking about <laughs> losing your virginity. I'm talking about losing your innocence. Like something happens to a person, a bone crushing thing that happens. And then it inspires them to like when I interviewed Neil Brennan, one of the greatest things that I mean, most powerful thing he said that I always go back to, of what really, really got him going in the right direction. He said his father was dying on his deathbed. And he said he walked in the room, him and his dad, and he said, Dad, I I have to ask you something. It, it never felt like you loved us. And his father looked at him and said, Neil, you're right. I never did. And he said that incident, which was so destructive, fueled him to really work harder and prove that he was worthy of love. And then when I asked him, which was an unbelievably incredible moment, I asked him, if you could choose a great career the most respected career of anybody in the business or love, which would you choose? And before I finish the sentence, he said, I'd choose love. And so was there some kind of incident for you that happened in your life that, that, you know, you look back and you're like, Oh, that was devastating. And that really inspired me to get to the next level. I, I don't know. I guess, you know, in my mid thirties, I got divorced and then kind of, you know, made, you know, working at Caroline's like my primary focus and moving the club here, you know, from going down to the seaport, which was not an easy task. I moved, let's go back. It was on eighth Avenue and 26th street, you know, till 1987. And then we moved down to the seaport and the seaport was a challenge. I mean, it was a challenge. You know, I was running the club there, which was close to like 175 seats at that time. And they had a restaurant, two restaurants, and they, they were challenging. And the whole location was challenging. I remember articles being written that somebody comes to the seaport, to Caroline's, on the, this dim, dismal night. The pier is empty. But I opened the door to Caroline's, and it's filled with people watching Richard Lewis. You know, so I, I remember those things and I was kind of beating myself up downtown, 
you know, trying to make it all work. The club was working. The challenge were the restaurants. And I said, you know what? I, I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And I remember that Ian Schrager had asked me to come look at the Billy Rose Horseshoe Lounge. Now, for those of you who don't know, Ian Schrager is a, an entrepreneur famous for developing some of the most extraordinary hotels in the world. Um, so I went to see the the Horseshoe Lounge, and it needed a lot of work. And I said, I don't know if I'm up for this one to redo this whole place in here. But I kind of, this was back in 1990, and there was some energy happening here in Times Square. And I saw it around me, and I said, you know what? I'm in the entertainment business. This, this was the entertainment area. Uh, agents were here. Managers were here. Broadway was here. Um, and I said, you know, I think maybe I want to move the club from the seaport to Times Square. So I decided to do that, and I went out, and I moved into this building, which is a very large office building with the downstairs. And this building was kind of zoned that it needed to have an entertainment venue in it. Because on this particular, on 49th Street, between 50, uh, 50th and 49th, they knocked down a very famous theater. So the real estate people that put this building up had to have an entertainment uh, complex in it. Now, so I kind of met the criteria of that. Now, as far as negotiation is concerned, because you are a great negotiator, and I think this is important for everybody that is listening when you're starting a venture, there's a lot of things you don't think about that you need. And when you're going through it, the costs just add up and add up and add up. And the biggest cost you normally have is your rent per month. And that's the first thing you look at in the beginning as you're starting of how I can get this down as much as I can and how I can bet on myself of how long term my lease is going to be. So if you don't want to bet on yourself that much, you're taking out a lease that's very short term. And if you want to bet on yourself, you try to extend the lease as much as you can to get a deal that's as best as possible. Like, for instance, the Village Gate, the famous Village Gate, which no longer exists on Bleecker and Thompson Street, I believe it is. They had a 50-year lease there. And it was, in the beginning, it was expensive. But after the 10th or 15th year, it was ridiculous. And after the 30th year, it was insanity. But they were locked in. And so here you find a place that needs you. They need you. They don't have anybody. Do you, in your negotiation, did you use that to your advantage to get the best deal possible coming in here? I think I think I got a pretty good deal here. I mean, it was you know rents in New York City are pretty expensive. I mean, rent here right now is pretty expensive. Um, you know, I'm, I'm here over 20 years. What percentage without telling me the amount of money from like, if it was $1 20 years ago, what's the rent now? It's probably four times as much. Amazing. So, yeah. But being doing business in New York is very, is, is, is very expensive. It just, it, everything is expensive to do here. So it just, but then again, there are lots of people on the street that come into Caroline's too. So kind of balances out so we have been i have been ex, you know i've been successful here so i'm not complaining about anything so so you're negotiating for the space now at the time if i'm not mistaken the space didn't look anything like this it was like a no it's it was raw space this had to yeah. be totally constructed everything all systems brought in and everything else and building this out and making this room work you know this room seats near 300 people 
but it's very intimate. It's it's an intimate space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's more of a theater. I I hate to say that you know Caroline's falls into this comedy club thing, because look, my whole thing with Caroline's was to get away from the down and dirty. It was to elevate comedy, and that was my goal from the beginning, and I was so right on the mark with that, because it is one of the hardest art forms. It is it is an art form that everyone loves. And if they don't love, if somebody has a little comedy, run, run, run from that person. Um, as we see today, how we, we talk about comedy, you know, comedy on the internet, comedy on TV, comedy on cable. So comedy in movies, comedy in books. Um, it's, it's the hardest art form. And when you were designing the club, I imagine you hired an architect or of some kind. Do you draw out on like a napkin what you want? Or do you just let the guy or girl just do what they do and bring you the, the options? No, I was very involved with w- w- what it would look like. I mean, here, you could see just the, the symmetry of the room. It's, it's a little off kilter, only to make everybody kind of... Uh, look at the stage in a certain way. There's just little little hints of things that are, are a little off kilter about it, but just make it work. Um, the architect won an award here for theater design of the space. Uh, Paul Haig, who worked on lots of buildings with Philip Stark. He did the Paramount and the Royalton. He was the architect of record on all of those hotels, and he did a wonderful job here. As you can see, this club is uh, 23 years old, and it still looks quite modern. It's like literally it was just built yesterday. And if you, if you haven't been here, just to give you the visual picture of the club, it's very odd the way if you were to like hover over the space and just take a photograph, the actual shape of the room is a shape that doesn't exist in the world. It's not a square. It's not an oval. It's, it's I guess you could say it's, the shape of how somebody would draw an eye and very clever. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's got like four different tiers in the club that make it feel like a theater. We're sitting on the first tier in front of the stage, which probably holds about 75 people. And then there's a tier in back of us and there's these huge booths. I don't even know if you call them a booth because the booth itself Literally in this first area here, I wouldn't be surprised if it was 20 yards long or 15 yards long. And then the second tier at back of us is probably two thirds to three quarters the size of that. And then the tier in back of that is a little less with another booth. And then in back of that, in back of the stage, which is very, very unusual, is on the other side is a bar that's a beautiful bar that has bar stools that are have wings on them. The key is there, I thought, in the beginning for it to be like bar flies. Absolutely, they're bar flies. And, um, and the area there with photographs of comedians, what I remember on the walls and this really unique architecture and seating underneath this huge stairway, something out of like the Great Gatsby coming down. It's an incredible metal stairway. And then the food here also... Uh, really, really wonderful and incredible. And uh, and what's fascinating as a comedian and as a manager about the club and probably, in, if I were going to say, was the, one of the greatest things about it for me, but probably one would probably say was a flaw, is the fact that the comedians and the managers 
in order to get back to where you want to go without walking through the room, you have to walk through the kitchen. And so you walk through the kitchen and there was always something I loved about walking through a kitchen. It was just wonderful. Probably Robert Kennedy wouldn't say that, but, but I would say it because it's just, you walk through a kitchen and there's, you get a feel for any place you're involved in because that's where it all happens. That's where the waiters and waitresses are. That's where the manager runs through. That's where just, Everything happens. And if you get the feeling of the kind of personality that's in the kitchen, that's normally the hardworking personality that's in a comedy club. And I used to love walking through that kitchen. And there was a guy who worked there for many, many years, Gordon. Yes. Who, Gordon was who, our, who was our bartender. Was there for many years. And just, uh, just uh, at that time, it, it was amazing to me how, you know, and, and as time goes, probably people get tired of what they do or their position. But at that time, I just couldn't believe how dead it was like, literally, if you were going into war, you'd want this guy like in the front lines. He ate, breathed this club as so many people did. And everybody was so protective and had your vision, which was uh, really, really. They did. I mean, thing. people people wanted to work here. I mean, they wanted to be involved in this scene. Um um, it, it kind of, you know, the, the, the great part of, 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 of being at this club is that we are able to, um, every week, create something new. So that keeps us going. So, you know, doing it for like 30, you know, 32 years, um, we're always able to have something new going on and something, introducing new talent, bringing back old talent, um, and I just have the best time, you know, coming into this room and watching a show. And people always say to me, oh, my God, I have to do more of this. I just have to come to the club and laugh and have a great time. And there's not a person that comes to this club that doesn't say they haven't had a good time. So that makes me very happy. Um, you know, and the other part with being, you know, what comedy has also helped to do is also helped um, – helped me raise money for different charities that I've gotten involved with. So the comedy business has been very good that way. Uh, people in the industry, the performers, everybody kind of always tries to give back, which is something, you know, that I love about uh, the comedy community. Um, years ago when I was at the Seaport, um, I had chefs, Susan Feneker and Mary Sue Milliken, who were chefs that owned a very, a uh, great Mexican restaurant in California called the Border Grill. So I brought the two girls to the seaport to help conceive of new menu items and help write the menu for down there. And Susan and Mary Sue just loved comedy. So they said, you know what? We have a, I have a very sick friend, Sharon, and she suffers from scleroderma, and I want to do this benefit out in L.A., and can you help us get it started? So the first Scleroderma Foundation benefit that we did was was um, was was at one of their restaurants in L City Restaurant in L.A. on La Brea. And I believe this is a horrible disease where your skin hardens from the inside. I believe, and it's a, you can't you can't recover from it. Um, so yes, you're, it, it's exactly Bob Saget's sister 
passed away from that, and he does a benefit. Uh, well, this is this is how Bob got involved in this benefit. Bob then then befriended Susan and Mary Sue, and became involved in it. And it grew and it grew and it grew. The the ladies, the chefs, cook and and Bob helps to get all of the talent. But it's something that came out of Caroline's. This was from New York Caroline's goes to L.A. to City Restaurant, and we start this, and only because of. All of the great comedians that helped start it, like Judy Tenuto, Paul Provenza, Richard Belzer, Robin Williams, all helped to get this started out there. So I have been able to do great stuff for people through using comedy and raising funds, you know, which, uh, which I'm, that I'm most proud of. Um, I, was help, I was able to do it with the Miss Foundation. I was able to do it with the Hudson Riverkeeper early on. I was able to do it with Stand Up for Heroes which is um, our big benefit that we created here, Andrew, myself, with the Woodruffs. Andrew Fox. Andrew Fox. Who's one of your partners. One of your partners here. And we created Stand Up for Heroes, which is an annual event. And it'll be going on nine years this year. And last year we raised over $7 million at the event. And this year we'll do as much. It happens. It's our big charity um, Benefit, that's part of the New York Comedy Festival that kind of kicks it off in November. Yeah, you, you've always been so incredible with all the charities and you give so much back. It's incredible. But it's incredible that we have this industry that gives back. You know, their time is so valuable, but they'll think nothing of getting on stage um, from John Stewart, who's come back every year to do stand-up fears, Jerry Seinfeld, Robin Williams, Ricky Gervais. I mean, the list goes on of people that you know have come back. Louis C.K., uh, Jim Gaffigan, and of course Bruce Springsteen that does it every year. He's kind of the anchor there for it, and he even tells jokes during you know during the benefit. Um, but it's it's incredible how this industry gives back. Um, it, and it's just unbelievable where we're allowed to raise that kind of money from it. So I'm always very proud of the comedy industry that way. They really do. They take care of, they take care of giving back. They look to an example. And I think you're one of the greatest examples of that. You know, you mentioned that when I came to town, I was the competition. Now, I don't believe that the Boston Comedy Club was the competition, but I do know this about business. You're in a town, a gas station opens up on the corner, and it's the new gas station in town. And then a year later, there's another gas station that opens on the corner across the way. And then five years later, there's four gas stations on each corner. You go down to Greenwich Village, you open a cafe on the corner, there's another cafe, and there's four cafes there. When I went to the village, I opened up. The comedy cellar was already there. Mm-hmm. Manny, Dorman, and Esty always were uh, said I was the competition, which I was back then for them. You had the village gate that was doing comedy. You had the um, the, the cabaret on the corner, which escapes me the name that the was doing line. the bottom line. And there were a few other places doing comedy, and there were a lot of places there doing it. But there was never any place at all that was doing upscale comedy. But I think that you'll admit that in everything you do, when you're a groundbreaker and you're doing things that nobody else is doing, there's always going to be people that come in that are competition. So what is it that is your greatest challenge in a business facing competition from other comedy clubs? Like, in other words, like I always found 
if I could be so bold and share this with you and you'll tell me if I can't. One of the most difficult things, like you said, John Stewart comes back here every year. And, the stand-up for heroes. And a lot of people come back here all the time. And what happens, the most difficult thing as a manager, as an artist that you deal with, is you're in a situation where you have people who were there from the beginning. They fought for you. They take care of you. And then somebody comes along and sends you an offer that's greater than what the person has done before. Because not because they're a greater club, not because they're, you know, it's so special. It's they're doing it because they're trying to beat the competition. And so now your artist has in their mind, okay, what do I do? Do I, do I stay with Caroline's or do I go and take jobs at the other place? And it creates incredible animosity, tension, and it's just like a, just a, there's, it's the only way to win in your mind is to stay at the place you are like Caroline's. But then there's people on the other side that are constantly hammering at you and saying things and taking the artist aside and, you know, and so you're in this constant quandary. So for you, tell me how you deal with the competition. Tell me how you deal with places like the Gotham comedy club opening up and, they start as a certain way, like a showcase club, and they do their thing, and then they realize, hey, you know, this isn't working. Uh, we're going to die a miserable death unless we do something different here. So let's make this even more upscale, and let's figure out a way to get this going. Let's figure out a way to get a comedy show in our comedy place. And it's all, the whole thing is a blueprint of what you did here. How do you deal with that? Well, well, I guess, you know, when the boys did open their first little club, they wrote me a note saying, you know. The boys, uh, the Mazzillis. Not Mazzilli, and there was another partner, I believe. Um, he wrote a note that, you know, flattering me, you know, we just love Caroline, so we'd like to do the same thing. I said, okay, well, you know, I guess that's, we're off to the races here. <laughs> um, you know, let me tell you. I've been around a long time. We've employed a lot of comedians here. We start a lot of careers. And then when somebody comes around and wants to offer more money, is what you're talking about, as another club, and somebody goes there because they're offered more money. I mean, we try. We are, we are so fair. We, we are so fair to everyone here, myself and Lewis. I mean, we Louis have Ferrando, Louis one of Ferrando, the greatest who, booking uh, people of all time. And he's probably been here for 20 years and he was a catch a rising star before. And for those of you listening, and I'll go out on the record as saying, uh, Louis Ferranda is the greatest comedy booking person that at any club that I've ever seen or known in my entire life. And as Judd Apatow says, when he does comedy and Chris Rock does a set, at the club, all the comedians sort of go back in their booths and it's an unspoken thing. You just put your head by your hands and you just say, well, there's Chris Rock and there's everybody else. And when it comes to comedy and booking, there's Louis Ferranda and there's everybody else. It's true. It's true. You know, between Louis and I, you know, we've, we've watched everyone. We're fair. Um, Louis, 
works with lots of people's people. He gives great direction to a lot of comedians, tell them what's wrong, what to do, how to fix it. Um, and truly loves the business. Now, the other part of these clubs opening is that I was never sure that they were really in it for comedy. I would thought they were in it because they wanted to sell some drinks and put them just easy to put a microphone on stage and, the, and that's it and call it quits and they get people, people in there. But I didn't feel that a lot of people opened in New York City because they were truly into comedy. I have to tell you that I truly loved it. I tried to elevate it. I tried to make it into um, this great art form. Um, it was a time when nobody talked about comedians. Now you can't pick up a newspaper where they're not talking about somebody. Um, so um, I sometimes worry about uh, the clubs that were there when they weren't really into comedy. They needed to fill a room. They needed their downstairs room to be filled. That's what I always worried about. And these clubs that send you the note, what they do, and it's not just a comedy club business, it's many businesses, they offer more money to an artist. They get in a situation where they make an offer that's so great that there's no way they can make money. But they're just doing it so they can get in the situation where they can have that first victory. Once they have the first victory, then they feel, okay, we'll put some other shows in here where we can make money, we can make money, make money. Now three months later, let's find another person who we might lose money on, but we get that next victory. And if we can just get them in the door, then we'll figure out a way to make a certain, it's like the car business. There's certain auto dealerships or cars that get you in the door with a certain thing and, and they might not make that much money on the car, but they get you in there and they hope that you'll stay and buy another car there the next time. Well, you know, you know, Karma has a way of working out. You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, I found that people that have come into this town and say, we're going to put Caroline's out of business have gone out of business. That's right. So it, it comes around when you make a statement like that. I mean, there was a club that opened here on 14th Street a uh, number of years ago that just paid talent a ridiculous amount of money to steal them from here. And I go, hey, you know what? I'll lose money if I pay that amount of money. So you, you need to go work there. Oh, that's right, comics. But Rags the Riches was the one before that. I found it ironic when I walked in there and they said Rags the Riches. I thought, you know, it should be the other way around. Riches oh, the Rags. I even forgot about that one. I've, I forget. There's, there've been so many. Um, when an artist is offered more money, let's say at comics that goes out of business, and they call you up and they say, Caroline, do do the, any of the comedians actually themselves call you up and say, listen, what would you do? I mean, they're offering me twice as much. They're never going to make any money here. Can I just do it and then come back and do your place? Or are you like the kind of person who's like, listen, if you go there, burn my phone number. You know, I've, I'm, I'm wiser than to ever say burn my phone number because things can always change and situations can change as, as they have. And as we've seen. Um, so I never say that, um, you know, you try to have a balance. You try to expect people to do the right thing though. And you try to explain to an agent or a manager why it needs to go this certain way and why, okay, you want to go there and make more money. That's, that's fine. But you know what? I, I can't do that for you here because you don't do that amount of business. It's, it's partly because of what Caroline's is, is why you do the business here. So we try to explain a lot of that. And if it doesn't work, then. We're on to the next person. Um, you know, after doing it 32 years, people come, people, there's a whole new crop coming in. And I can't tell you how fair we, will, we are with everyone, how super nice Lou is to everybody that works here. 
and really cares about them. So I, I, I can't, you know, I can't compete if the agent's going to take that person to another club because they're paying more money. But like I say, what comes around goes around. You know, it's, it, it, it works out in the end. You know how like Letterman, there'd be people that he always wanted on the show and he, he just could never get them on the show. And when they finally came on the show, like Cher, she said, why haven't you come on the show? Because you're an asshole, Dave. Um, and I'm not saying a comedian says that about you, but is there ever a comedian that you just always wanted to get and always try to get? And for some reason, they just, they just, they you respect them tremendously but either they don't come to new york or they don't want to come in it might be an old time comedian what is there somebody like who's never worked at this club in 32 years that you thought god if i could just have that person here it's never happened you know the only person that never really worked at the club was roseanne barr and years later when i got to know roseanne a little better she says to me those jerky agents I had never told me that you wanted me at Caroline's. They had me opening for, for Julio Iglesias. She said, that's where they kept me busy. I wanted to work at Caroline's, but nobody ever gave me the offer. So maybe something like that. Um, no, you know, it, you know, it's gotten into this, uh, you know, clubs now managing people. It gets a little dicey there. So, you know, you have to watch for that. And you have to say, you know, is the club owner truly have the client's best interest in mind? and not the club. No, it's it's, it's very true. When I owned um, the Boston Comedy, keep in mind, everybody, this was, again, like Anne Frank's Comedy Attic. It was like, but but I managed a lot of young people back then who weren't getting work anywhere. And as Caroline said, she said, I have to ask if these people are opening the comedy club as a money-making venture or to really move forward the art form. And for me, it was never about the money. I mean... Never about the money and the club itself. I mean, maybe if I made a fifty thousand dollars, that would be a miracle. Where I was, I was in a situation where I was in a little hellhole. I was there basically to give artists stage time, and I was managing people. And I just wanted them to have stage time. It wasn't. I didn't care if it didn't make any money. I could care less. I just wanted the people that have a place to work that weren't getting stage time, like the Chappelle's and the Tracy Morgan's and the Louis CK's Louis CK was the first comedian to go on stage at my club. And he helped me set up the wires and everything. Mm -hmm. It was incredible. Mm -hmm. That's why I did it. I didn't do it for the money. Now, granted, I guess somebody might say, who's listening to this. Well, wasn't 40, $50,000. That's money. I mean, that had to have helped you. I mean, yes, it did help me, but it, it's not the situation where it's like I'm going to buy an island, you know, and that's the thing. So I, uh, I want to just ask you a few more things and then we'll ride off in the sunset. So one of the things I want to ask you about is I, I, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to do like a six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name of somebody, anybody, and I'm just going to ask you what the first thing that comes to mind. It might be a quick story. It might be one word. It might be something else, just something that you think of when you think of this person. Amy Schumer. Amy. Um, I'm proud of her. I'm proud of what she's accomplished. Um, I'm proud that she's collected some Peabody Awards. And I'm proud that she's out there. And I just hope that I was able to encourage some of these young women today to, to try their hand with stand-up comedy. 
because when I first started, you could count on one hand the amount of women that work for me. I was just talking to Sandra Bernhardt the other day. It was Sandra, Elaine Boozler, Rita Rudner, Carol Liefer, maybe one more. I can't. I mean, but there was a handful when I first opened the club. And now today, I am so proud of all these young women that, that want to be in this business. Awesome. Go get them. Dave Chappelle. Oh, Dave. Oh, I remember him as a 19-year-old on my stage at the Seaport. Um, a great kid. And I, re- have, I remember him walking down Broadway here with a baby carriage when his first child was born. And he used to bring the child into the club. Um, so sweet memories of Dave and where, what he's achieved. And I have to tell you my most, what I love is that I have worked with all of this great talent early on that has, have proven to be great stars and have created great comedy. And I was there first with them. So I get a big charge out of that. I really do. I watch TV. I see the credits. Not only people starring on them, the people that created the shows, Michael Patrick King. I mean, you know, uh, Ray Romano, uh, just, just Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David, all the writers on the show, all the people that I've worked with. I, I get so much pleasure knowing that I worked with such talent. The late Robin Williams. Oh, Robin. Oh, that day when I found out I was in my car and that, that he had passed away, I started to cry because he was such a great, great guy. This was a man that just was the sweetest, the most charitable man around, um, always tried to please people, gave his all whenever you asked of him from first from the first scleroderma event to something that I did for the Hudson River Keeper. He was there when he was asked to do it. He came and did one of the first shows for Stand Up for Heroes, which really got it started. And he did it again. And he was going to do it again last year until he passed away. And I just have to say that people must know this about Robin, but he, he was, first of all, the most hysterical man around, the most giving man around. And I was just very shaken up when, when I, I learned that he died. But I have to just tell you that he was there for everyone. He gave and he gave and he gave. Awesome. Jay Leno. Jay. Now, Jay's another one of those very sweet men that have been around. I remember asking Jay, I was doing some research and I wanted a reporter to talk to him. And I got to him through Bob Reed at, at tonight's show. And Jay's very approachable. That's, that's one thing about Jay, very approachable man. And I said, um, would you talk to this reporter for me? I'm, I'm thinking of writing a book and I want to just get some, talk to you about the early days at Caroline's. And he said, yeah, give me her number. I'll call her right now. Now, what kind of menschy guy is that? He was just, he's just the best. You ask something of him and, and he's, he's there for you. So I remember that about him. And I remember him when we hired Jay, he would come in and play two, two, two weeks straight in a row. And he would stay in this apartment that we had. And Mavis, his wife would come in every night with him and sit at the bar and we'd all have a great time. Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. I remember Jerry also being at the club in the early years and doing the first, one of the first New Year's Eves that we had at the club. 
And that was a big highlight for Jerry. And to this day, people remember, oh, my God, I saw Jerry Seinfeld at Caroline's on New Year's Eve. <laughs> but Jerry had later told me that this was a big, a, a, a big event for his career was to play Caroline's on New Year's Eve. So lots of fun with Jerry. And uh, remember watching uh, when I opened the seaport, watching the TV down there when uh, Seinfeld Chronicles just went on the air and hoping that all of that would go well. Well, that went well, didn't it? <laughs> yes, it did. Sarah Silverman. Sarah. I still see Sarah as that very young, beautiful girl that would hang around the club. And I have visual her sitting at the bar outside with high top sneakers on. That's how I see Sarah. And um, she has stayed true to herself, has not changed. And that's the road she took. Absolutely. But when you look at Sarah, you see this beautiful girl. And it's kind of like, I can't believe what just came out of her mouth. <laughs> well, that's the winning formula. Uh, speaking of people who you can't believe what comes out of their mouth, the late Bill Hicks. Oh, oh Bill was a buddy. <sighs> what a shame. Just think if he were alive today. He'd probably be the greatest comedian on stage. Actually would be. I mean, I have a piece of tape of him from Caroline's Comedy Hour which I played because it was probably one of the first ones we ever taped and you play it now and it still sounds good. It still sounds <laughs> modern. I really missed him. And you know, his last performance was here. He had come in and we were going to work together. We were going to do some sort of management together. And he came in and his stomach was very extended and I didn't know how sick he was. And he, he died of pancreatic cancer and it was just, and things were going so well for him you know, the letterman that he did and, you know, there was controversy about it, but it was all good for him. And it was just, I tell you, I miss him. He was a guy that I, you talk about, if you felt I was competition, I would fight to have Bill Hicks at my club and he would probably walk half of the crowd every time. And people would say to me, like, why do you have this person here? I said, I will have him here any moment, any day have it because there's no one like him in the world and if those people can't understand this form of art form then i don't want them at this club and and that's the risk you took when you booked bill but it just shows you that you're not just somebody who's an entrepreneur you're somebody who loves the art form of comedy um bruce springsteen did i say that already no you didn't say bruce um here's a, a man that um i met through through Stand Up for Heroes, I just, um, I didn't know him. Um, uh, listened to his music, of course. Um, but here's a man that he, he has done Stand Up for Heroes every year. He's kind of the backbone of it. It got, it, it, he was responsible for getting it started, for raising all this money. And the thing I love about him is that every year he tells three or four jokes. And he goes and he's serious about it. So he kind of brings all of our comedy and music together there. Awesome. Awesome. Tracy Morgan. Tracy. Um, of course, you know, uh, you were managing Tracy at the time when mm -hmm. we all started to work together. Yep. And Tracy used to come in here and watch acts and just try to learn everything he could possibly learn. And then he went on SNL, which was his big break. Yep. And then we had Tracy here. And we had Tracy here many times. And we stood by Tracy every time because we did have customers that said, oh my God, we don't get what's going on on stage there. But we stayed 
with Tracy because we loved Tracy and we believed in Tracy. And Tracy turned out to be an absolute superstar on the stage. And I love him as a person. Um, we loved him here again, here at Caroline's Memorial Day weekend. Two weekends later, he's in that horrible accident. And I'm telling you, I was like beside myself until we all found out exactly what was going on with him. And, you know, he's, he's recovering. I know that, um, you know, everything is good with his leg. You know, they were worried about his leg because of the complications. Um, he had traumatic injuries to him in his head. Um, he is going to be okay and we can't work to work, work with him again. Awesome. 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 Gary Shandling. Gary. I used to call him, how's my hair, Gary? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Gary would have, so I remember from maybe go, how's my hair doing? How's my hair looking? Okay, good. Um, it was fun. It was fun to have Gary uh, in the early days of Caroline's there because he was hosting The Tonight Show. So it'd be nice to see when Gary was on stage and he'd go, oh, I'm, I'll be at Caroline's this certain week. It was, it was, it was fun to hear that. And, you know, just so you know, one of the most amazing things that you guys used to do, which was so great, and in, in the 80s and the 90s, whenever anybody did Letterman, they would book the club around uh, the Letterman appearance or the Letterman appearance would get booked and you'd get the call and you'd arrange it some, you move some things around and put them in. And so you, you always got that plug. Did it really help? Yes. In the early days, it helped when uh, right now we, we have, you know, people can be on a number of different shows right now and it doesn't really help to sell tickets like it used to years ago because of the fragmented. What, 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 if you had the point that one, if, if, if somebody could do one radio show or one television show or something that would have the most impact in filling the club now. Because I want to say it, this because I have another artist, he's three foot tall, Brad Williams, you know, and uh, he's the only little person that really headlined. And he just did a Showtime special, which happens to be, they uh, told us, the highest rated Showtime comedy special this year. And things are just, you know, he goes in and it's like, it's it's totally different than the way it was. But as you know, many people do hour specials and nothing happens. Uh, but if they're good, something happens. Yeah. The, if the hour special is good. Let's take John Mulaney. After his hour special on Comedy Central, he was killing. So people do appreciate. When they see something good, they want to go out and see it live. It really It's not like what it was like The Tonight Show. When Stephen Wright was on The Tonight Show, he would time. sell right out. Yeah. I mean, just things, things have changed. But to have that great special on, it does help. And which network, does it matter which network is best for selling out? Is it HBO? Is it Showtime? Is it Netflix? Is it Epics? Is it, what, what is it for you? No, I, I, I don't, I, 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 I don't think that it, it, it is one particular one. I just think that when a person is on that particular channel that you all mentioned, look, I had a discussion with Bill Burr a few years ago when Bill started to really start. We loved Bill and I was a big fan of Bill's from the beginning when he was just, an opening act, barely an opening act here, um, and always supported him. And Bill uh, was just starting to sell tickets. I go, Bill, did you just do something like, did the special hit? And he said, you know what? I put it on Netflix. And I think that's where I am getting all this traffic from. He said, I think people really found me on Netflix. Interesting. So they're finding comedy wherever they can. So 
when you really do have a good special, people find you. Last comedian, Chris Rock. Chris, you know, I, Chris, I, I consider Chris like, uh, I, you know, I look at him, I went to top five. I loved the film. Loved the movie. I loved him. But I still remember Chris as like a 19 year old kid. You know, and he's a grown man, you know, 50 years old. And I still look at him as like a, like a little kid that was here. I don't know what it is about Chris. Maybe because he's just, he looks so, um, he looks young, you know, just looks young. But he, of course, was, you know, one of our early Caroline's favorites here. Um, you know, um, Wanda Sykes tells a story about how she opened for Chris and that kind of set her career up here. That's right. I was representing and Wanda at the time. You were, okay. And how she opened for Chris, and then Chris asked her to write for his show, and, and that was the start of that. I'm going to tell you a funny story that I might have told a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> you talk about the management and how you can go down the tubes quickly in any business or whatever. Chris told me that he wanted her for the show. He told her he wanted her for the show. He said he was going to call me when the show started. And then he reached me and he said, Barry, I, I have to apologize to you. I'm so sorry. I, I don't even know how to, how to tell you this. I said, what is it? He said, I went to my first writer's meeting in my show and um, I sit down at the first writer's re meeting and there's a woman across from me and it's not Wanda. And I finished the meeting and I said, who's, who's that girl? And uh, they said, well, you you told us to get the black woman who worked at Caroline's. And so we got the black woman that worked at Caroline's Leanne Lord. And, uh, he says, but I didn't, I, I, that's not the person that, well, we did a 10 week contract with her. We have to honor it. And so telling Wanda that, that she had not gotten the chance to do the first season of the Chris Rock show because Leanne Lord was hired by mistake that doesn't go well as a manager. Even if you don't, even if you weren't a part of it or what happened, you still are a part of it. Right. And, uh, I didn't work with Wanda much longer after that, but then, then Chris uh, did hire her, uh, and then the rest is history. So one of the things that you do, that's probably one of the most amazing things, because, uh, you know, uh, after being at the Montreal comedy festival so many times and seeing how they do things there and how it was and, and I always felt like it was at the highest level. I thought to myself, there's no, why even bother to, to start a festival anywhere? Because there's no way that anyone's going to ever figure out a way to do something as great or top that. And then, of course, Caroline Hirsch comes up with the concept of the New York Comedy Festival, which many people had tried to do certain kinds of festivals here. And as many of her competitors tried to do comedy clubs, failed. Tell me the genesis of the New York Comedy Festival and how you feel you've grown it into the largest comedy festival in the world. Well, um, it, this festival came about because I was having the 20th anniversary of Caroline's. And we did this great show at Carnegie Hall to celebrate the 20th anniversary. And of course, you know, people came out to support us. Louis Black, Dennis Leary, John Stewart, uh, Richard Belzer. I mean, just, you know, all of the people that kind of started with me at the club that were available came over to Carnegie Hall to do, a, to, to do part of the show. And I said, oh, you know, I wish I could, you know, a lot of the clients that we work with, the comedians here, have graduated from Caroline's and are on doing theaters and, and bigger 
bigger spaces. And I said, I really want to work with these people again. And it was so much fun to do that show. So it was kind of an extension of the 20th anniversary into creating this New York Comedy Festival, which we started. Now, when you're in New York City, you get to work at the greatest venues in the world, whether it's Madison Square Garden, uh, Carnegie Hall, uh, the Beacon Theater, Town Hall. So Skirball, you get to work in the Apollo Theater, which we love. Um, you get to work at these great venues and people want to work there at these great venues. And we have great talent. We will be going into our 12th year. Um, and to, to be around for that long, I think we are the longest festival in New York City, I believe. Um, and we're, we're doing gangbusters. We have great support from Comedy Central, who is a partner of ours in the festival, a media partner. And uh, we take great pride in being working with them in the festival. Um, and we get great pride of the shows that we have produced. We've set records you and I worked on a show. I know. It was uh, one of the greatest moments of my life with Dane Cook, where I, I remember negotiating with you and Lewis uh, for Dane Cook, and I asked to do two shows. And uh, I think, uh, I don't know who it was, but, you know, they thought I was a little uh, batty. But I, I, I felt like he could do it and he could make it happen. And I remember in the negotiations with you and Lewis that, and and Dane, because he was always a part of things. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but when you're doing concert tours for an artist, there's a fee that the promoter gets, there's a fee that an agent gets, and a fee that a manager gets, but mainly that we're talking about the promoter. And what I had done on most of Dane Cook's shows is I had negotiated, because he was so popular, I had negotiated a fee, a promoter fee, that was almost half of what everybody else was getting and they would do it because they wanted to be associated with a guy who was selling out an arena. And if they didn't make as much money, they were okay with it, not thrilled with it, but they were okay with it. And when I came to you guys and you came to me, I'm sorry, you guys came to me uh, with an offer uh, to do the festival. I had already had an offer with Dane to do something here at Madison square garden with a promoter that would have done it for a certain amount of money. And when I talked to you guys about doing it that way, I was really, really respectful and impressed that you guys said, no, we need to make our promoter fee that we make on everybody and we're not going to change it for Dane or anybody else. We know he'll do well, but we're not going to do it. So talk to Dane and make the decision. And I remember talking to Dane and saying, look, <laughs> There's other people that can do this date where you'll make more money. Will it be enough money that you'll make more that's going to change your life? No. Would it be a nice gesture to be in a situation to support Carolines? They have been there from the beginning with you. Yes, they're going to make a little more money. Yes, you're going to make a little less money. And true to his form, which people don't really understand about Dane, that people think that he doesn't really get it but he i remember he met with me and he said barry let's do it i want to support caroline's i want to support lewis and caroline i want to do this i'll i'm probably never do it again but i'm going to do it because you know in the end i want to be loyal to the people that mean something to me and if they're going to bet on me at caroline's from the very beginning from when i did an open mic night on a monday night where you first saw me to Madison Square Garden, 
They deserve that. I'll never forget that. And well, uh, that that was quite a night. That that was a night of history. That was a Sunday that Dane sold out two shows in the round, which is nineteen thousand tickets in the round. Thirty eight thousand seats. I went up to the top, 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 top of Madison Square Garden and looked down at this mass of people that we did twice on a Sunday. And I remember Dane was shooting a movie in Rhode Island and came down and went right back up again. That's right. And I'm and, and I'm getting a little emotional here because I realized that that was the first time that I ever did anything with you where I felt like I did the right thing and I did something that was important to this club and to your company and also was the right thing and important to the artist. And it was the first time with you that I didn't do the deal that was not fair to me, not fair to you. I did the deal that was fair. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was the first time where actually at the end of the show where you hugged me and you said thank you. And I really thought, wow, this is this is the way I should be doing business. Well, we thank you for all of your support over the years because, um, you know, we've worked with lots of your talent. You've brought a lot of talent here. Um, I remember you being responsible for putting Whitney Cummings in this club early on. Yes. We supported her. Yes. We supported her from the beginning. Um, so it's it's been, um, you know. Well, that's the thing about your this place is that Lewis and you, they, you, always, you always believed in me when you didn't have to believe in me. Like I mentioned the guy Brad Williams. I've n- I know that you'll end up probably using this guy, Brad Williams. You probably wouldn't even use them. Maybe another person, you might not use him. But I know in the end, if Lewis says, who can I bring here to do something special? Because I was always in the situation in the beginning where I would never care. I know this is odd for you. The first time I had somebody come in here, I could care less. I would tell Lewis sometimes, look, I don't care. Just, just don't pay him any money. Just give him a percentage of the door. Mm-hmm. Don't even fly him in or put him up. Some deal where you can't lose. Let me bet on myself and this artist. Let's just put him in. And then that would be the barometer. It's like a basketball coach, a great basketball coach or a great football coach. You watch the first series of plays and he sees how it's going. And then he calls a timeout and he says, okay, what adjustments do we have to make? So I always knew, give it, give the person a shot to come in here. And if they prove themselves, I'm going to get the deal I'm going to get. And I know I'm going to get it. And if they don't, then they don't deserve to be here. I mean, you know, we've worked early on with people and have not done as well as we think we're going to do with them. But it's okay if the manager and agent understands that we'll stay with this person, but there needs to be that next time and the next time after that, that they come in, you know, that we're part of it. You know, I'll put people in this room that maybe not quite well, we think they're ready, but they don't prove to be that ready. When I mean that, I mean that people just don't come out to see them um, because yeah, they're just not I, in in, in the picture had, yet. I've had it both ways where I've had an artist come in and Lewis's bet on them and they did no business at all. And I know that they're never coming back here until they do something special because it's like a relationship. If you... If you go out with a girl or your girl, you go out with a guy and, you know, you have a shitty experience, it's going to be hard to get on a second date again. Um, 
but you got to prove yourself worthy to, to get it again. It's the same here. And, um, but I've been pretty fortunate that the people that have come in have, uh, have done very well here. Yeah. The people have done well and have gone on and, you know, look, we try to, like I said before, we try to be fair. We try to recognize lots of talent and, uh, we do our best to be, you know, to help everybody out that wants to play at Caroline's. All right. Last three questions, if you don't mind, and then we're out of here. Your biggest disappointment in show business that you took and it fueled you to do wonderful things. Well, the disappointment, I think, was coming, uh, opening the seaport after Caroline's was so successful, but it was a tiny little club, and going down to the seaport and having to take that financial hit that I did. But I, it was a new part of my life. You know, it was like a new starting for me. I closed the seaport. I came up here, and this place just was successful for me. Everything was, was good about here. We were in the right location. We were, in the, we were here before Mickey Mouse was here in Times Square. So um, it, it was good. It was good to be here, and it was a start of, of kind of like a, a new life. You know, it, 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 things were changing for me. So that was part of it. Um, awesome. So that was a good thing for me. Listen, I'm, I'm very privileged. I'm a privileged person. So um, I had a good life. You know, there were some curveballs thrown, but um, all in all, I'm a happy person. I have a great business. What who go to work like this and just hear people make you laugh all day? So it's like it, it's it's the best job in the world, right? Absolutely. Your proudest moment in show business? Oh, um, I think it comes from um, our Stand Up for Heroes event um, two years ago, and just going out in front of the troops and. Um, just saying to them how much I appreciated everything that they did for this country. And we were happy to give back for them. So that makes me very proud. I was just at a store in New York the other day. I get my order at the store. It's $30. The person at the counter says, would you like to make a donation for phone cards for the troops? It's $15. And I said, absolutely. But I was a $30 order. And she's asking me for fifth, the store owner. Mm-hmm. The owner of the store is having every cashier say, it's $15 here. I'm taking the phone cards going in here so you can see. And I asked her, I said, how many people out of 100 people that you asked that to spend the extra $15? And it surprised me. She said 10%. I thought it was unique that the owner of that place had the guts to go out on a limb and ask each customer for 15 extra dollars. But that shows you how people feel about the troops. Well, people feel very passionate because it's, it's something that, you know, your son and daughter didn't have to go and somebody else went for them. It wasn't the draft. It was something that these men and women volunteered for and they got stuck in the middle of this war. You know, they went in to get an education. They went in because of economic reasons. They couldn't afford to go to college. They felt it was a good way to go to college or med school. And um, then we're caught up in having to protect all of us here. So I feel very, very passionately about about service people that have helped this country. So I wanted to give back that way. Awesome. Tell me 
one comedian that you believed in when very few people believed in that became something that you knew they were from the moment you saw them at an open mic night and they became a huge star? Um, let's go to John Stewart. Okay. 19, it must've been 1989. Let's go to John Stewart. Let's go to Bill Burr. Let's go to Louis CK. I'll give you one. Okay. I knew him when he came down from Boston. Um, I have tape on him as a young comedian working here at Caroline's. We used to show some of his little film. He used to, was a filmmaker early on and we showed lots of that. So I, it, it's, God, we have so many great talents that come out of here. So that's hard. And was there anybody like you just, you know, like for me, there are certain times as a manager and I'll put myself out there. Here it goes. Lisa Lampanelli, one of the most wonderful people you'll ever meet. And I used to go see her because she used to reach out to me to see her and she was very proactive and she wanted to get a manager and great representation. And I would go to see her and she would kill so hard. But her act was such in that those times, and I haven't seen her lately, where it was it was all it, it was mostly all crowd work and just basically roasting all sorts of ethnicities with stereotypical jokes. And I'm not saying stereotypical to downgrade Lisa Lampanelli. I'm just saying the style was to take a you know, the Jewish guy is cheap, the black guy is hung like a buffalo, the Chinese guy doesn't know how to drive, you know, and it was just this thing where she would take the crowd and unite them by shitting on everybody and would probably kill harder than anyone you could ever see. And I just thought to myself when I watched her, because I was always thinking about who can break through into film, television acting, writing all different kinds of things besides stand-up. That's what I always was thinking of when I was looking at artists. And I just saw her and I, I just thought this person's going to make a lot of money probably, but I just, I don't think it's my thing. It's my lane as a manager. And I never, I don't feel like I ever supported her as much as I should have. And uh, as such a wonderful person as she, she is and so great a performer as she she is. And so that was one person probably of many that I could say honestly and truthfully right now on this podcast that I, I, I didn't, uh, rally to manage and didn't fight to manage. Was there anybody in your career where you saw go on stage and you're like, I don't know, I just don't see it. They might have it. I don't see it. And then they became something really special. Uh, No one really comes to mind, but let's get back to Lisa Lampanelli. Okay. Um, you know, Lisa, you know, kind of got her start here. She would, you know, be outside giving away, you know, passes to come in to see her. And I Louis said to me, you've got to see this, this woman, you've got to see Lisa. And I stayed one night and I couldn't catch my breath. She was is so hilarious and still is to this day. But, you know, you have your eye of what you look for to manage. And I have my eye on what makes me laugh in the room. And she, by far, you know, became a big success. And she is so good at what she does. I mean, she just is unbelievable. We always, we were her biggest fans from the beginning. Awesome. Final question. 
what advice would you have for the young entrepreneur who's growing up in Brooklyn at city college or wherever they are in the world? They just, they're, they're in another profession, but they have a dollar and a dream that they want to go into something and, and to, to have the kind of business and career that you've had. And then secondly, what advice do you have? You've seen so many young performers of what it takes to start and get to the level of so many of the comedians that you've worked with that have become the biggest stars in the business? Well, the first thing about, you know, when you have a, a vision, you're younger and you want to do something, it's just that you need to stay with it and be clear about it. Um, and tenacity is probably, you need a lot of that. You, ha- you just have to stay with your dream. Look, when I first opened the first Carolines, even Lewis will tell you, and Lewis was working at Catch a Rice. He go, what is she doing? What is she doing? Headlining people? Nobody does that. You know, it was just like, you know, people go on stage and just try out their six minutes that they needed, like, to go on on Carson or whatever. That's what they were doing at the showcase clubs at that time. And I just said, no, 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 no. I'm going to make this as a grown-up nightclub. And people will want to come and see this performer because I'll tell you why. I did that. When I was a kid, I used to watch The Tonight Show. And on The Tonight Show, there was a club called Mr. Kelly's in Chicago. And I remember when a comedian used to go on to to the Carson show, they'd say, I'm going to be at Mr. Kelly's so-and-so and so-and-so. And And I said, when I grew up, I said, I have got to go see that comedian at Mr. Kelly's. I must have been like 12 years old. And I remembered that. And you, you also brought back to the place when you said people were on uh, David Letterman all the time. I put that out of my mind because when I was a kid and I heard Mr. Kelly's in Chicago, I said, well, when Jay Leno comes to New York, he's going to be saying Caroline's. And that was kind of something, the marketing plan that I had for that club. And the marketing plan, I mean, I had to change a lot of things when I first opened. Nobody was writing about comedy. No one was writing about comedy. I befriended Hank Gallo at the Daily News, and Hank became this fan of comedy and would come in and cover the Pee Wee Hermans of the world, uh, the Emil Phillips, the Judy Tenuders early on. And we created something that was new to New York City. It was a grown-up nightclub, and I got reporters, and I got TV people to cover this. CNN was just about breaking at that time. Well, they needed programming, so they were just down the block from the old Carolines, and Cheryl Washington would come in and do interviews with me, and that was the start of what I did. I didn't know that this was going to happen, but I kind of made it happen when I was there. So a lot of it's luck. A lot of it's just, if you think it's right, go ahead and do it. And then trying to come up with what's going to make you different than anybody else. Because I, I knew I couldn't be the show cl- showcase club. I wasn't going to be Catch a Rising Star. I knew Rick Newman. I went when Rick Newman first opened there. But I knew I wanted to do something a little bit different. So as, as Robert Morton first said in the New York Times, when the Times wrote about us, it was the first yuppie nightclub in New York City. So it was, I wanted to be in the business, but I knew I had to do it a little differently. Awesome. And what advice do you have for the young performer that's starting out that uh, wants to have the kind of career of Chris Rock or Seinfeld or Louis C.K. or any number of these artists? You've seen them all start. You have an open mic program here that's one of the most unbelievable in the country. Uh, if you come here for an open mic that you can't even believe it. Like It's like it seems more packed than most comedy clubs if they have a headliner. And uh, so very supportive of those artists. We are. And, and, it, and it's the carol caliber of talent on those new, new talent shows, which is quite amazing. And we see a lot of people that come from there and then get to 
be an opening act and then a middle act and then eventually headline. I mean, Jim Gaffigan kind of started out on New Talent Night. Uh, so um, that's been good for a, a lot of people. Um, what I say to people are, okay, um, I think that a lot of the people that want to be in this business today might have it a little easier than when we first all started because they have such great people to study. They have the Larry David to study. They have Jerry. They have, Jer- they have these, they now they have Louis to study. So young people today, not that it's going to be easier for them, but they can see how they have to stand out. You must have your own voice. Um, you must write a lot. And you just need to be doing it. I mean, nobody in this business is an overnight success. It, it takes a good 10 years for some people to even get noticed in the business. And you know how we've watched people on stage and you'll say they have that defining moment when they just click. I, don't, I can't explain it, but it just, it just happens. After doing it and doing it and doing it, there comes a moment when it all falls in place for you. Like Patton Oswalt. Patton was was a kid that started out here, um, and we, we did a show with him at Town Hall and the New York Comedy Festival two years ago. Standing ovation. Chris Rock is in the audience. Um, I, Robin was with Robin Williams was with him. They they were standing up. I mean, he had that defining moment of just crossing over into brilliance. Awesome. Caroline Hirsch. You have crossed over into brilliance today. Thank you so much. This has just been, I think this is going to be so great for everybody to listen to. I'm so uh, happy and honored that you took the time here. I know you're busy and I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for doing this. I am so happy that you did this. I hope it was okay for you. Sure, absolutely. And as always, this is Industry Standard with Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.